Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey there, thanks for listening to Leading Simple, where we're trying to just simplify all the noise out there and figure out leadership principles for all of us. I'm your host, Rusty George. Cannot wait for you to hear this conversation today with my buddy, Glenn Keene. Glenn was a part of Real Life Church in the early days. He and his family were, and I soon began to discover what it was Glenn did for a living. He was an animator for Disney. He is the guy who is behind some of our favorite movies, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Tarzan, Tangled, and he soon after that left Disney to start his own production company, uh, Glenn Keane Productions, and he had the amazing opportunity to work with the great and late Kobe Bryant and produce Kobe's animated short film, which won Glenn an Oscar. He was later nominated for another uh, Academy Award just this past year, um, and just an incredible guy and a follower of Jesus, and he weaves his story of the gospel through his animation. You're, you're going to love this conversation. So grateful for him being on the show. Um, we told you over the past couple of weeks and through the month of September, we're putting out the book After Amen for a reduced cost of 12 bucks, uh, cheaper than Amazon. And we're going to give all profits to a great organization called Saving Innocence. And Saving Innocence is an organization fighting to rescue kids from human trafficking. You may remember episode 162 with their CEO, Alan Smith. And if you just go to PastorRustyGeorge.com, type in the code word INNOCENCE, you're going to get one book for 12 bucks, or you can get two for 20 or three for 30, as many as you want to go there. And all the profits are going to go to Saving Innocence to help rescue kids. So you're going to get a book that will help you in your prayer life, and you're going to get the knowledge of knowing that you're helping out kids who are praying prayers, wondering if they'll ever be answered. So a great organization to partner with. So make sure you check that out and get some books for yourself and for some other people because you're helping out kids. Today's episode, again, is brought to you by Red Letter Challenge. Love this organization. Over 1,200,000. <laughs> Love this organization. Over 120,000 individuals have now completed Red Letter Challenge. Several hundred churches have utilized this series and have seen incredible results. Churches that use RLC, meaning Real Red Letter Challenge, Churches that use Red Letter Challenge grow their small groups by an average of 40% in just 40 days. Uh, so in these COVID days, boy, this is a great chance for us to build unity among our people. So make sure that you check this out, redletterchallenge.com slash rusty. You can get a free book. So redletterchallenge.com or redletterchallenge.com slash rusty. Well, here we go. This is going to be a great conversation with my friend, Glenn Keen. Well, Glenn Keen, uh, animator extraordinaire, uh, an incredible individual. Thank you for being on the podcast. And our podcast is designed to help people that feel overwhelmed. Life can be overwhelming at times, and we're trying to lead through that in a bit of a simple way and give us some clear handles of how to do that. Your career has not always been simple. Um, it's been ups and downs, highs and lows, but there's been a through line of God through that. And we see that clear back into the influence from, uh, your, your parents and your dad drawing on or creating and drawing family circle. Tell me a little bit about growing up the influence from your parents and, and just your dad as an animator, a cartoonist, I should say, what kind of influence did that have on you to get into art? Yeah, well, I mean, it was fantastic having a, a live-in art teacher because dad's studio was attached to the house mm. because we were his source of material. I mean, stuff that you did during the day, dad had a little sketch pad in his pocket and he would always be drawing little things uh, that we did. I mean, when, when he passed away uh, several years ago in his studio, I opened this drawer at the bottom of his desk and there were thousands of these little sketches of all these things that we said and did that were future family circus material that uh, it was, he was really a great observer of life. Uh, and I hung out with him all the time. If he went to the art store, I was always with him. Um, 
there was one guy who lived out in the desert, far out in the little shack, and dad would go visit him. His name was Don Barkley. And he was one of the guys that operated the cannon in Mary Poppins. He was a friend of Walt Disney's. And we would drive out there. He was a bachelor. And in this shack, um, it just smelled like oil paints. And, mm. and he and my dad and him would have a beer and a cigar. And I'd sit up at the bar and I'd have a root beer and a, bread, a pretzel breadstick, whatever. And uh, I, just, I just loved the feeling of being an artist. Mm. And uh, I'll never forget one day... Um, I must have been like nine years old. Dad says, Glenn, I'm a cartoonist. You're an artist. Mm. And it was the most wonderful words I'd ever heard. It was like being knighted. <laughs> and he gave me this book called uh, Dynamic Anatomy. Um, and I started to draw the figure from a very classical approach. I remember getting on the school bus and um, and my friends gathered around. I had this sketchbook and they all started laughing at my drawings. And they were saying, oh, look at Keen's drawing naked guys. <laughs> and everybody's laughing. <laughs> you know, and when you're a kid and your friends are laughing, you tend to not do that anymore. Right. But because my dad was like such a wonderful influence i in that fork in the road that tells you don't go that way instead i went the other way and embraced it, it was like that makes me special they don't do what i'm doing mm. i i like being an artist and and i just pursued that all the way to um to when dad drove me out to cal arts to drop off my portfolio at 18. I was either going to play football for Arizona State or I went to CalArts. So I had all my, my artwork and I wanted to go into the School of Painting. But it was Easter break, the school was closed. And we're, we're driving around the school like, what are we going to do? And there was this kind of this stoner guy kind of walking from the dorm as we drove past. And uh, dad stops the car, rolls down the window. And he says, uh, excuse me, young man. Um, and the guy said, yeah, man. And I'm thinking, Dad, what are you doing? And the guy walks over to the car and Dad says, look, my son wants to go to the school here. Um, and uh, he wants to go to the art school. And we have his portfolio. And Dad takes my portfolio of all my original drawings. And he gives it to this guy. <laughs> he says, will you drop it off in the art school uh, when it opens? Sure, man. And the guy takes it and he walks away. Oh, my goodness. And dad and I drove back to Phoenix. I mean, I would never do that, Rusty, no. with my kids. But no, dad was not sophisticated. I mean, he'd never been to art school or anything like that and didn't know how that worked. But I waited for a month and finally I got um, a letter from Cal Arts saying I was accepted into the School of Film Graphics. I was like, film graphics? What? What is that? This is 1972. And I was like, what? That idiot, he dropped it off at the wrong school, the wrong department. So I called the school. I said, there's been a mistake. I want to, I want to be a painter. I want to go to the art school, the art department. But I was accepting the school of film graphics. I don't even know what that is. And the lady in admission said, well, um, Yes, I see that. That yes, you've been admit, admitted into the School of Film Graphics. I said, "What is that?" She said, "Well, it's um, yes, it's uh, I have no idea, but this is the only way you're going to come to the school." So, so I said, "Okay, well, can I get out of that, and then I'll just become a paint, you know, go into painting once I get there? I'll take a second. She said, "Yes, we can do that." So I got to the school, and my first day of class. I found it was a way of saying animation. And I mean, this, the stoner guy probably is some headhunter or job placement guy. You know, he, he probably looked at us like, no, this guy should be an animator. And he dropped it off there. I don't know how, but it was just God's way of, of designing my path for me. That is 
That is an incredible story. I've never heard that before about your dad putting your entire fate into the hand of a stoner walking in the hills of Cal Arts. I mean, it could have been anybody, but, uh, well, those were, were simpler times when people, uh, their word meant something. So, wow. Okay. So I want to, I want to follow that line because here at an early age, you're beginning to see maybe a little bit of God's providence and yet. Now you're charting your own course. And I love the fact that you mentioned your dad championed that. It was not, you'll do what I do. It was, you be who you are created to be. And that's different than me. How did you kind of walk that line of honoring dad, but charting your own course? I think a lot of our listeners have have had that, whether they feel a pressure to either be like their parents or parent like their parents or take over the family business from their parents. Yet, they also want to be themselves. Uh, how did you kind of live that out over the next few years during your your formative years? Well, I I hung on to that idea that I'm an artist and that that was the path I wanted to go. Um, most people in animation weren't following that path. They wanted to be an animator. But I just saw animation as a way of expressing my art. And... Um, my mom, my, both my mom and dad were, were incredibly courageous people in terms of life choices. Um, dad met mom in Australia in World War II. Um, she lived out in the, the rainforest in a tent where they had snakes. Under, you know, they would have to be in, in hammocks. And um, she would tell me stories. And it was just such a great adventure she lived. Uh, she had a pet koala bear of all things. And, um, and mom moved from Australia out to, to Philadelphia. And then they moved out to the desert. Dad didn't have a job. All he knew is that he, he could come up with funny cartoons. And they just trusted somehow this was going to work out. And as an example to me, I, I always felt like you – you can lean into the good, mm. that there's something, expect the good. And I've seen them live that out in so many, many ways. The Cal Arts was just another one of those. I had, matter of fact, just a few months, actually a month before I got that letter, I was standing in line at a movie theater uh, and a girl was standing behind me. This was to see The Godfather. and. She turns out to be my wife one day. Yeah, we were both 17 and and there's Linda and I fell in love with her, love at first sight kind of a thing. Um, we were there together for three days. She was visiting from Minnesota and then she moved back home and uh, was actually engaged to somebody else, but had met me in line. And Oh man, Rusty, I, this is going to take way too long. I'm talking way too much here, but um, <laughs> no, keep going. I got to just say, I got to say the. Uh, <laughs> she gave me the, her phone number. I, she was with a guy in line. Okay, I, all right. So I was I'm kind of a jerk, I guess. But <laughs> when I watched when the guy went back to get popcorn, I ran down there and asked her for her phone number, and I would give her a call tomorrow and show her around Phoenix. So the next day I wake up and I call this number and I got like K Kmart or something. <laughs> but I remembered that she said she was staying on 24th Street with her parents in Phoenix, and which is kind of like Ventura Boulevard, just goes forever. So I just hopped in my my car, which is a 68 Mustang, and I'm driving down 24th Street looking first place. Nah, she wouldn't stay there. Nah, she wouldn't stay there. Third place. This just felt like it. And as soon as I turned in to the, to the parking lot, she stepped out of the door of the motel room. And it was like, of course, of course she's there. And then I started thinking, wait a second, she thinks you were a jerk. She gave you the wrong phone number. Now you found her. And so I'm slumping down in the car, hoping she doesn't see me. And um, she walks past my car and get to the car of the parents and they start driving away. And it was Linda's mom said, Linda, isn't that the boy that you met in the movie last night? And I had this big head of red hair. Now there's not much of a lot there, but 
uh, she said, yeah, that's him. So she got out and we dated for the next three days. And then I saw her again three years later. And the second day I asked her to marry me. And that was, um, we did in 1975. I mean, I tell this story to our kids. I mean, we, we'd actually seen each other for eight days total before we got married. Um, I don't recommend this. I'm just saying that this was the only way it was going to happen, I guess. But you lean into the good and trust that something good's going to come from it. Well, I, that's amazing. Every time I hear that story, I'm, I'm just astounded. I mean, the movie The Godfather has a whole new meaning for you than it does for the rest of us. Yeah. Uh, my yeah. goodness, that's incredible. I don't remember much about that movie. I just remember about her. I remember there was a horse head in the bed. <laughs> that's all most people remember, <laughs> unless you're an avid fan. Um, okay, so you, you go to work at Disney, and you're really there kind of, um, you know, you're learning from one of, as I think you refer to them, one of Walt's nine old men that he kind of poured into. You're being poured into by one of those guys. Um, here you are as an up-and-comer, you're learning from legends. Um, how do you how do you respect the past and honor what has been done, but still blaze a trail? Um, did you find that difficult to not just do exactly as has always been done, or was it easy for you to kind of shift into, uh, okay, thank you, and now I'm going to take it my way? How, how do you walk that line? Because there's a tension there too. Because you're, you're around some legends. How, how do you do that? How did you do that? Well, they were really good at um, knocking down those barriers. I mean, as mentors, they, they knew. I mean, they had created this medium. And, uh, and so you are totally intimidated. And all you need is the slightest suggestion from them that you are worthless and get on your knees kind of attitude. Instead, it was not that at all. Um, and it, mentoring is a huge part of my life. And, and I take so much of it from my dad and those nine old men. Um, I remember the first time stepping into the Disney studio in Burbank, um, where Walt had done Bambi and Pinocchio and so many classic films, but it was the, um, the smell is what I remember first, that it was, it was like artistic incense. <laughs> it smelled like pencil shavings, cigarettes, and scotch. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It smelled like my dad's studio. He would smoke half and half pipes, and, and you know, he'd have a beer. And uh, but it it had that. This was a place where artists lived and worked. I felt that when I walked in, and the first person I met was one of the nine old men. His name was Eric Larson, and Eric Larson, kind of a round sort of a guy, and me. And you you you're intimidated by him. He's, he's got a big big belly, you know. And you have a choice if you've got a big belly. Where do you put your belt? If you if you wear it below, that's a truck driver. If, but if above, it's a gentleman. And he's a grandfather. He always had the belt above the belly, you know. And uh, that's some good wisdom there. I don't think we've ever shared on this podcast how to wear the belt if you have a belly. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I said, hello, Mr. Larson. He said, it's, it's Eric. Okay, yeah, yes, Mr. Larson. Glenn, it's Eric. Okay, yes, sir. Uh, and he said, Glenn, let me just stop you. Walt Disney created this studio. Everybody's on a first-name basis here. There is no age difference. We are all artists. We're all learning from each other. And you're an artist, I'm an artist. So it's first name basis. Yes, Mr. Larson. <laughs> it was like, wow. it was such an important thing to establish right at the beginning that we are all learning and growing. Um, Picasso said, when I was young, I could draw and paint like Raphael. It's taken me a lifetime to learn to draw like a child. And I think that's the path that these these men came to the point where 
they actually got younger the older they got. There was something constantly rejuvenating in the films that they were doing, discovering something new. Um, and so I really took that to heart. And uh, every project, anything that I worked on, I found it was an opportunity to dive in and learn something new, which is always humbling because you really don't know. You don't know the thing that you're about to do. Um, another thing Picasso said was, I'm always doing that, which I don't know how to do in order that I may learn how to do it. Um, that just been my whole life leaning into that. I don't know if I'm answering your question. No, you really are. And you're really, you're really kind of setting us up for the, the next question too. And I, I want to talk a little bit about the transformation at Disney because Disney animation kind of hit a bit of a, of a rough spot back in the seventies, eighties, you, you know, you were brought in to fix that, of course. Um, but you, no, kind of, I caused it. you, you, <laughs> you caused it. Okay. <laughs> and, and if you, if our listeners have seen the movie waking sleeping beauty, it's, it's a fascinating film uh, about how a documentary about how Disney changed their animation. And you're in that as well as other names they would recognize, but you guys really turned the corner with a movie that you worked on beauty and the beast. And then later Aladdin. And that kind of started all this train of incredible hits coming out of Disney. Talk to us a little bit about you walk in with this great culture at Disney and then they didn't really see the output that they were hoping for. And then it changed again. What did you see during that time? What really took Disney to that next level with these great characters that we now know and love? Well, um, it was a difficult time because it, those nine old men had not uh, trained a new generation mm. until like it was almost too late. I mean, the pilot light was just about gone. Uh, some of them had died. Um, they realized that they better pass this on. Um, but there was a whole group of people in between that had now gotten older, but they didn't want to give it. They didn't want to pass the baton to that middle group. They went to like 20 year olds like me. And so that middle aged group became the young people's assistants. Like I was an animator that barely knew which direction was up. And I was working with people that had been there for 30 years and they were my assistant. This was, this was not designed for success. It was really, really tough. And there was so much tension uh, within that studio and it, it took quite a while before we we actually turned that thing around. As a matter of fact, at one point, um, the films weren't doing well, and Disney was Disney Studios was about to be sold, um, possibly to Sony. Um, they were going to take the animation library and uh, sell it. Um, it would just be there would no longer be an animation department. But Roy Disney, uh, Walt's nephew, took control of the company with stock and then hired Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg from Paramount to come and run the studio. They had no idea about animation. They did not understand anything about it. Um, and all the animators were moved out of the studio and everybody carried their boxes with them and they were moved into a... Uh, a little warehouse in uh, Glendale where they were making coffins, <laughs> but we went in there with the idea that there may not be any more animation. The coffin thing just kind of- It was a bit of a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so we, um, you didn't know what was gonna happen, but Rusty, the really interesting thing was being forced out of the comfortable world of that Walt Disney built was like moving out of your house and you have to survive on your own. And we, we had to work together. Um, and Disney, oh, Jeffrey Katzenberg 
ended up hiring this guy, Peter Schneider, who was um, had just uh, was the head of the arts for the 1984 Olympics in L.A. And he came in to run the animation department. He knew nothing about animation. And everybody was running the show, knew nothing about animation. But but they came in with this idea of like, okay, tell us what what is this about? And people asked, pulling that out of you was really good. You realize, oh, there is no track any longer ahead of you. It's just an open field. And the animation studio changed. It became a theater group as Howard Ashman and Alan Menken came in and were hired to do music for Little Mermaid. And that group became like an acting troupe that went from one film to the next to the next and one film I'm being Ariel, the next film I'm being the Beast and next film I'm being Aladdin. And everybody's uh, playing these different roles. And it was music really brought in an enormous boost. Uh, Little Mermaid was the first um, fairy tale in 25 years that we had done. And it wasn't anything like any of the other previous ones. Um, so th there was, it was the influx of, of all of these new people. And I remember the attitude there at Disney among the animators was very um, cynical. Like, who the heck are these people? They don't know anything. <laughs> They're telling us what to do. This, this, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And, but there was something so wonderful about um, this openness. And the old nine old men, well, Frank Thomas Nolly Johnson had written this book called The Illusion of Life. And Jeffrey Katzenberg took it with him to Hawaii one summer and just read the whole thing and came back like, uh, just an evangelist for animation and was so excited about it. And I, I just loved working with him and found him an incredibly inspiring guy. So these movies begin to take off and here you are. And I, I'm glad that you mentioned your character in each of them. I, I didn't know this about animation. I just thought that everybody drew a little bit of everything. And I know there's some collaboration, but for you to take on the role of some of these characters, it starts with Ariel from Little Mermaid and then the Beast from Beauty and the Beast and then Aladdin. There's spiritual components to each of those for you that was personal for you. Would you share with our listeners a little bit about what you were thinking as you're drawing Ariel besides the question, will she have a belly button or not? <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, the Beast, which was a very transformational time, and they even share some of your story in the, I think it's the extra footage that came out a few years ago. Hey, everybody, let me take just a moment to interrupt our conversation to tell you about something really cool we're doing in September. Uh, we want to support this great organization called Saving Innocence. They work to rescue kids from human trafficking in Southern California. And so we want to benefit Saving Innocence by um, giving profits from After Amen uh, to them. So if you will go to PastorRustyGeorge.com and buy a copy of After Amen for the reduced rate of 12 bucks, it's I think over 15 on Amazon, we're going to give profits to Saving Innocence, a great way to support Saving Innocence and maybe a great gift to give somebody else. That's the book After Amen, What to Do While Waiting on God. For $12, PastorRustyGeorge.com. Simply use the promo code SI, the letters SI for Saving Innocence, and we'll be able to support this great organization called Saving Innocence. All right, back to our show. Tell us a little bit about where you were spiritually when those movies were being put together. Well, when I started at Disney, um, I I would have to say I was a fallen away Catholic, um, been raised Catholic, but I no longer went to church and I no longer, it just didn't mean anything to me. It was 
it was tradition and I just wasn't thinking at all about um, church uh, or God for that much, for that matter. It really wasn't thinking much about him. But at 20 years old, when I started there, it was probably just a couple months after I, this was a chance of a lifetime for me to be there, to be training, to be learning. And it was an incredible blessing, but <laughs> God has a way of blessing us deeper and richer than we can even ever imagine. So I was growing as an artist, but then I just started to have this incredible sense of sin in my life. Like, like I couldn't stop thinking about who I was before God. And it became obsessive. Like it was, I would walk down the hallway with this heaviness on me. And I would see everybody else there, and they all seemed happy and cheerful. And, mm. and it was just this, I'm, I'm wondering why, why can't I enjoy my life right now? I'm learning, but what is this? And um, there was one guy that at lunch, we would, we were all pretty insecure, a bunch of little artists there together, wondering who's going to survive, you know, and who knows more than each other and a lot of competition. But there was one guy that um, was sitting on the park bench. I, would, I noticed him a lot, uh, Ron Husband, uh, an Afro-American guy, and he'd played football at uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. And, um, and he was reading his Bible at lunch. And I thought, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen anybody read a Bible. I mean, I spent my whole life as a Catholic and I never read it. <laughs> I'd never seen anybody actually do it because they wanted to, what? And uh, so then they took this bullpen of all of us trainees and they split us into twos. And I was put in a room with Ron at that point. Um, and so I saw that he was reading his Bible. And I said, Huz, Ron Husband, I call him Huz. Huz, what does the Bible say about how I can know that I'm right with God. And he said, well, to tell you the truth, Glenn, um, I'm just new with this myself. And I was like with the Jehovah's Witnesses. And, and I've been reading my Bible and finding out that they're not right. The Bible, you don't work your way into God's favor. You claim you can't do it. This is a gift. It's, and he showed me John 3.16. He gave me this little Gideon's Bible that he had picked up from a hotel when he was playing football somewhere. And he said, here, take that. Read John 3.16. And I remember um, going to Jack in the Box, which is no longer there, but it was on Alameda and Buena Vista, and getting a, a hamburger and coming back across the crosswalk, um, reading it as I'm walking. I mean, I'll just never forget those words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but hath everlasting life. And it was, now I'm on the sidewalk and I'm looking at that and, and it was like there was this something I could apply to those words, faith. I mean, I believed it. And I, I remember just saying, I, I believe this. <laughs> I mean, nothing that I manufactured, it just was there. And just thought, I believe this. If I believe it, God says I have everlasting life. <laughs> it's not some I can't lose that. It's it's I'm I'm just trusting these words. I'm trusting Jesus. And it's not the nightmare before Christmas, it's Disney. <laughs> that changed my life. Uh, I my attitude changed very much towards the other artists. 
Um, I always saw everybody else as having their act together and you feel like you're intimidated by everybody. And suddenly I, I started to feel like everybody's searching. Um, and I became interested in other people. I felt like I had something to give to them, not just about teaching them the Bible, but in sharing what I was learning as an artist. And I started doing lectures as a young man there, 25 years old, I was doing lectures and, and it just became an attitude of, of like sharing, giving, giving back to everybody um, in any kind of a way you could. Um, and I think that's, that had an impact about the way I approached everybody around me. And I started to build bigger teams. Um, Tim Burton was one of the guys who started to work with me. And Tim was, <laughs> I remember it was on the Fox and Hound and we were animating Vixie, this cute little fox a character. Sandy Duncan did a voice. You know, for Disney, you make the teeth a little bit softer and the paws are really cute. And, and Tim brought his drawings in and the, the claws are, he's got these long nails and, and he's got razor sharp teeth. And, you know, I said, Tim, no, this is, you, this, you, you can't do this. But yeah, yeah. And so I, I, I started to uh, work with um, other people and, um, Building teams was part of what I did. And I also never lost touch of what dad had said, Glenn, you're an artist. And I kept applying um, classical art. I, I, I think, what if you took the art of animation and gave it to Michelangelo, uh, to Rodin, to Degas, but didn't show them any of the movies we've done? What would they do with it? And so I, I approached animation that way, like for the beast. Um, uh, there's a taxidermy place not far from the studio. So I wanted a big, something to remind me how big beast is. So we got this big buffalo head. It's actually on the wall behind me now. And as a reminder, the scale of beast for Bell. And I had a wild boar head and um, uh and I, I started designing the beast based on animals that I was discovering and learning and, you know, kind of from the outside in. And then you, finally you get to the point where you are applying what Ollie said to me, which was, Glenn, don't animate what the character is doing. Animate what the character is thinking and feeling. It's living in the skin of the character. You, you become them. And I got to the point where Beast is going to transform. Um, he's learned to love. He's been selfish. And I mean, I had a terrible temper as a kid. I mean, I would, <laughs> I'd storm around and smash stuff in my room. My, my mom would walk by the door and she'd say, is that my little Glenny? Oh, that would make me even more angry. And, and I, I related to the beast, very self-centered, angry, frustrated kid. And animating this transformation from the inside out, I wanted it to be an expression of my faith. I knew what transformation felt like. Um, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And so that was what I was animating, beast turning and the prince coming out from the inside out. Um, it, was, it was such a, a delight to animate that. One of the hardest parts of it was doing his feet, transforming. And I, that morning before going in to work, I had my basset hound and I was holding her foot there and I was trying to draw it because basically beast has a bat, basset hound foot that transforms, I guess is what you say. <laughs> uh, that, that became very much a, an expression for me. And, and I, when I look back on my, the characters that I've done, God has given me an opportunity to express my faith in these characters, which I never would have, 
known. Ariel is longing for a world beyond. You know, she she wants to be part of that world. Um, I was supposed to animate Ursula until I heard that song, and I I just felt called to do it. That she's reaching out. You know, it's so much about the calling inside of us to to live in a realm beyond that we we can't breathe that air. But through transformation, we can. And each step along the way, I've found some way that God has blessed and given me an opportunity to express my faith that way. Uh, I feel like we had at least 10 different bowls of oatmeal at Coco's talking about the movie Tangled, (laughs) uh, which started off with the name Rapunzel, which at one point had a pizza delivery guy and... uh, a dog and all that. And then it turned into the incredible tale that it was with a horse that that thought he was a dog. Um, but there's so much of a gospel story in that. And certainly at the end, um, tell us a little bit about how that, I mean, that movie for you was a bit of a journey because it was your pet project for probably a decade. And then you had a heart attack during it and, um, other people came in to kind of finish it up, but it was always your, your brainchild. And, this incredible scene at the end of Tangled um, where her, you know, it's, it's like this thing that she has inside of her is the, what, what transforms and changes him. And tell us a little bit about the thinking there and what, what you were hoping to convey. Yeah. Well, the heart attack, Rusty, I don't want to blame you for that, but <laughs> we had a men's group that, <laughs> that was going on at that time. And uh, I think God answers our prayers sometimes by bringing us through difficulties. And, yes. Um, it was it was a remarkable time for me. Um, it, was, it was a time at Disney where there was an enormous amount of changes going on, management. That went through five different changes of management within Disney Company. And every time it changed, the previous version of that movie was thrown out and started again, started again, started again. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was very difficult to go through. Be- underneath it all, there was this amazing moment in the original fairy tale of the, the tears that heal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was always an enigma, like, why do those tears heal? What is it about that original fairy tale? And these fairy tales, many of them, we were ways of communicating the miracle of the gospel mm. from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs to Little Mermaid uh, to Rapunzel. I mean, this is, I, I, I was uh, working um in France when I first started to work on this. And I remember we went to a, a restaurant in Belgium and uh, for New Year's. And they gave these little um, blocks with a carving in it, a saying. And in this one, it was the motto of, of a famous Belgian. Uh, and it said, plus et en vous, there is more in you. And I thought, this is the truth of the story. Plus c'est en vous. There is something inside of us that God has planted that seed, that seed inside of us, that transformation that happens. And it is an inexhaustible one. And it can touch others. It can bring life to other people. And in the end, you know, Rapunzel thought her power was in her hair, uh, which is cut off. And she she finds that she she's got nothing to save her uh, Flynn, who's dying in her arms. And the tears just naturally come. She doesn't try to cry. She doesn't produce that. That comes as a gift from within her. And it touches him and it heals him. And it's such a picture of of how we live our our life as believers that we allow God to touch other people. I have a friend who said, "Glenn, do you think um, you love people 
through your animation? I said, mm, no, nah, I don't think so, because I, it's always a struggle. I, I get so obsessed with what I'm drawing that I have to push it away to spend time with my family, who I love. And it's always a competition. He said, yeah, I really think you should rethink that. I think it's, it's in your drawing that you are actually touching people. And it happens in a natural way. It's not a self-conscious trying to do it. It's, it's who I am. It's what I do. You know, um, that, yeah, that image that you just said, said right there, I remember being in the theater, seeing that and thinking, boy, that is it. That is the culmination of it all. Your journey of the gospel, it was just, it was beautiful. And my family had no idea why I was crying so much at a children's film, but uh, it was uh, it was really powerful. Um, Glenn, what, one of the things that I admire so much about you is your commitment to where God is leading you. And I think you developed that early on, even though you say that you know you had a period of time when you were not necessarily following Christ. But I think that in hindsight, you see how he was leading you in spite of your own decisions and how you decided to lean into that, not only through your animation, but your life, which led you away from Disney, hmm. uh, to walk away from Disney and to do your own thing. And I remember that time of you not even knowing what that might be, but you just knew it was time to walk away. H how do you know when it's time to say goodbye? How do you know when it's time for that necessary ending? Um, it wasn't like you had a great next step ahead of you. You had several options. It eventually led to something great in Glen Keane Productions. But how do you make that decision to kind of uh, jump, uh, jump out into the unknown? Yeah, it's really a good question. I don't know how it is for everybody else. I could just tell you how it was for me. Um, one thing was very important is to be connected with uh, that little group of men that we were with um, meeting every Wednesday or Thursday, whatever it was. Um, to be constantly walking in a with the desire to to follow the Lord, you know, he says, may your good spirit lead me on level ground. So there's, you want to, you want that balance in your life, that the level ground. And I remember talking to you, I did not know what was going to be the right thing to do, but uh, Chuck Swindoll uh, had a message about Abraham that really stuck with me. And he talked about, loosening your tent pegs mm. when God's calling you. Um, he said, look, look at your life. Is God loosening your tent pegs? Are you thinking more and more about being somewhere than where you are? That's one of those tent pegs. Do you have a, a restlessness inside of you that you can't quiet? And, and for no good reason, everything's wonderful there, but that's a loosening of a tent peg. And I was feeling that. And um, Linda knew it. And she said, um, you know, my wife has always been kind of a big part of any big steps I take. Um, and I was saying, I don't know, I'm thinking maybe leaving Disney. I remember just laying in bed, <laughs> we're just talking. And she said, well, if you weren't at Disney, where would you go? What would you do? spent your whole life there. I said, yeah, I don't know. Google? <laughs> Google, what? They don't do animation. I said, I know, but wouldn't it be wonderful to take what, what I've learned and take it somewhere where they don't know it, they don't do it, um, and apply it? And, well, eventually, you know, I, I made the step leaning forward, trusting that God was going to provide, not knowing what I was going to do, but we left. I say we left because Linda's, that was us taking that step. And um, the next thing that really happened, there was a few things, possibilities popped up, nothing felt right. And then Google called and said, uh, would you come up and take a look at some technology we have 
we want you to do some animation that's going to explore um, a, a way of animating in 360 degrees using an iPhone. And it's like, it was an Android, not an iPhone. But so I went up there and we created a little studio. My son, Max, went up there with me, uh, Jenny Rim, uh, my producer, and we created a little film called Duet. And it was a celebration of life, of love, of the, the forming of, of babies from cells that grow up a boy and a girl. And you can follow the two of them and they fall in love. And, and uh, the, after that, I met, well, while there, I met the guy who's the head of the Paris Ballet, uh, Benjamin Millepied. And he invited me to go to the Paris Ballet and do a little film that I did based on Psalm 42 called Neftali. Um, so I animated that. Um, and then we came back and, and I started to develop another story idea, but surprisingly Kobe called <laughs> and asked if I would be interested in doing a film with him, uh, animating um, something. He didn't know what yet, but he knew that he was about to retire and that what he really wanted to do was animation. Okay, let me let me stop you right there. When you flippantly say, and then Kobe called, uh, that didn't happen for many of us. Um, I, I know that as an animator, I mean, obviously you knew football because you played football in high school, but as an animator, you're in the, uh, this other world, so to speak. Did you follow the Lakers? Did you follow Kobe? Obviously you knew who he was, but was that a, was that kind of a jaw-dropping moment or, oh, okay, let's see what happens? Well, it was a jaw-dropping moment. I mean, Rusty, I was not into basketball like you. I mean, you're a basketball player. You, you, well, I mean, half your messages are about basketball, it seems. <laughs> it's God's game. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I felt so much like, Kobe, what the heck are you, do you realize? Is that, and I told him our first meeting, Kobe, you've got the worst basketball player on earth animating you. And he said, well, that's good because everything you learn about basketball will be through studying him. You got to animate me. So that was, that was how he saw it. Um, but we, we connected, um, actually, <laughs> it was just an incredible thing. I mean, we're at this little studio in um, West Hollywood, the little Spanish duplex. And uh, Kobe's been visiting the big studios looking for somebody to animate for him. So he's gone to Disney. He's gotten to DreamWorks. He's gone to Pixar. And everybody's giving him an incredible tour of, you know, the world is at your doorstep, Kobe. We will do anything we can for you. And so then Kobe has seen Duet, and he's followed my career. He knew me. And so he, <laughs> we're waiting for Kobe. Uh, the big black SUV comes up, and uh, Natalia and Gianna and um, Vanessa and Kobe step out. And I, I, it just feels like a, it's a dream. They're walking up to our little studio and I'm looking around and it's like for once there's nobody on the street like <laughs> what somebody should be seeing this but nobody <laughs> could see it so Kobe comes up and we, we get a big hug and um and he steps into my little studio our little studio uh the living room the dining room really was was our story room and we had sketches up in there um, it was kind of a low thing that Kobe almost bumped his head on, little arts there, and, and he stops, and he's looking around. And <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, I know what he's thinking. This is not an animation studio. What is this? And, uh, he's, and he says, it's perfect. I said, what'd you say? I said, it's perfect. So what do you mean it's perfect? It's like it's it's real. It's like your drawings are just on the wall. This is this is real. 
And everything I learned about Kobe was about, I mean, this guy was real. I mean, he worked at it. There was no fake side of Kobe there. Uh, at one point, I tried to get him to do his mamba, uh, you know, just face. And he said, I can't. And this was, it was in an award ceremony. And Kobe and I were giving out an award at the animation festival. And, and I said, yeah, yeah, just go ahead and do it. And he's like, I can't. I said, sure you can. And then he started like getting like really mad at me and he started to do it, but it was not for fun. It was like, okay, all right, we don't have to do it. But he said, I, it's just something, it has to come from a real thing for him. And, and it, it was, what an incredible thing to be given that honor to animate that. Um, I didn't know it was going to be a final message from him. And matter of fact, in the last shot of Dear Basketball, um, I animated it first where Kobe walks off the court and he goes into this tunnel and, you know, it's just shadows and he disappears and it's the end. And it just felt like something's not right. Kobe needs to not be going into the dark. He needs to go into the light. So I changed it and animated him getting brighter and brighter and brighter and then he was gone. And I thought, man, I, I sure hope Kobe doesn't feel like, like I'm saying he's going to die. Uh, and he, no, he didn't. I mean, he loved the idea, but he, he did talk about a beautiful death often hmm. that he said, you've got to live not just a beautiful life, but a beautiful death that you are touching people. If you, if you are touching people, uh, that's beautiful. Mm. And then it's okay. Mm. It's okay to die. Um, and even, you know, to that very final moment on the helicopter, he was, he was calling, helping somebody get, get into a college and training. And he was thinking about somebody else. And Kobe really, truly was an amazingly, um, spiritual guy that the changes that had gone on in his own life. Um, I had so many times where Kobe said he was praying for me and vice versa. Uh, it was, yeah. I remember, um, talking with you after his death and I mean, that's a heavy thing. Um, the world lost an icon. You lost a friend and, um, there is a obviously a weight to his legacy that some feel, but certainly Dear Basketball um, captured that in a very beautiful way in just four minutes. I mean, it's it's such a short yet poignant and beautiful film that uh, that won an Oscar, and you know obviously changed uh, your life even more. And I, I see this, Glenn, throughout your entire life, where you've been in the presence of greatness. And you've not felt the need to live up to it, to be something you're not, but to just be God, you know, who God has called you to be. And it's always, it's always been exactly what was needed for that time. Um, as an artist, as a follower of Jesus, how do you keep that curiosity alive, that, that desire to constantly be you know, self-examining, but also reinventing and reimagining. How do you keep that going? Because you're not a young man anymore, and now you're a grandfather, and everything about you could say, well, I'll just be a sage and forget about it, but you continue to reinvent yourself. How, how do you keep that going? What can you encourage our audience about when it comes to just not phoning it in, but continuing to dream big dreams? Yeah, well, I've had some great examples for me. Um, yeah. Well, see, I, I wanted to be a pastor. I wanted to be in your shoes, Rusty. When I became a believer and I was reading the Bible and just like, what the heck does animation have to do with any of what I'm reading here? I mean, I was only 20 years old, so I didn't really understand. Um, 
but I did talk to my pastor and said, I, you know, I think I'm maybe going to, I should get out of animation and uh, I want to go to seminary. And he said, well, I would hold off on that. Look, I kind of secretly wished people didn't know I was a pastor. Like if I was a lawyer and I talked about the Lord, talked about my faith, that would be surprising to them. They kind of expect me to do that. You know? But you have an opportunity to be you there. That's not an accident. Um, and I was, I was so thankful that he gave me that, that guidance. So I figured that the respect I have for what you do, um, teaching scripture, inspiring, encouraging, um, building up others, that is like the highest calling, I think. Hmm. So I figure if I'm not going to do that, that animation really's got an enormous amount to live up to. And I'm going to make it. It's I'm just going to make it live up to that because hmm. I know what what I didn't do. And so somehow this has got to be really an expression of passion and joy for me. And the project I'm working on now, after doing Over the Moon, it was, it, what a wonderful opportunity. It was written by a woman who knew she would not live to see that film. Mm. Um, and it was very much an expression of how do you go through grief for her daughter? It would you know, have to move on without her. And that was put in my hands, and um, and I, I really am thankful for it. And so the project I'm working on now is is something new that I truly am kind of scared. For. I don't know. I mean, I've been wanting to do this this film now for 35 years now, but it's kind of like Mount Everest. I'm like, hey, someday uh, maybe I'll be good enough to do this. Hmm. Well, now my son Max, my producer Jenny said, now's the time. You need to do this. It's like, okay, all right, I'm going to do it. So I can't talk, tell you what it is yet, but sometime you and I will get together and we can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I cannot wait to see that and hear more about it uh, as that progresses. Glenn, I feel like I could talk to you for hours um, and and not have even scratched the surface. Thank you for sharing a bit of your life with our listeners. Um, for people to see some of your work or contact you, is there a website, social media, anything like that, or just want to direct them to Netflix to see Over the Moon? What, what do you recommend to people? Uh, well, I would recommend it to see Over the Moon. Yes. I am so proud of that film. Uh, they should also see my son Max's show, Trash Truck. I do the voice. I love that one. Yes. And uh, and as a matter of fact, today was the second season, mm. just uh, dropped on uh, Netflix. So it's all around the world. Um, Glenn Keane Productions is available. You can find it online. I personally don't know what the address is because I've never gone onto it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Somebody else will do that for you. <laughs> Somebody's taking care of it. But... <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if, if people want to contact me, that would be the best way through that, you know, to reach out. Okay. Um, but I, I really, really love what you are doing, Rusty, at uh, Real Life Church is an incredible, incredible church. Well, thank you. That I, I love what you said recently about um, it kind of being like Starbucks, uh, where you everybody goes to get their coffee, but now it's Starbucks going out to bring coffee. It's yep. there's something in that. I, I didn't hear the follow up message to it, yeah. but I thought that is such an awesome concept. Well, thank you, thank you, and uh, I just I feel like I'm a better preacher for having known you, and you've made my messages uh, a bit more intriguing by the way you've taught me about tension and and uh, creativity. So I'm just really blessed to call you a friend, buddy. Thank you for, uh, for being on the show. Thanks, Rusty. 
Well, thanks for listening. As always, share this with a friend, leave a review, and rate the podcast. Boy, that would mean the world to me. I'd love to hear from you. You can DM me on Instagram at RustyLGeorge or email me rgeorge at reallifechurch.org. Next week, we're talking to a church planter. So attention, all church planters out there, you're going to get some great insight from Joseph Barkley. And it's not just for church planters, though he did plant a church in L.A. and led them through COVID, and now they're coming out of it into a new building. Um, But he's also the father of a a child actor, so he's going to talk a little bit about that. And just harnessing creativity. Joseph is one of the most creative people that I know, and for all of us that are trying to figure out how to modify right brain versus left brain, Joseph's going to give us some great, great stuff. So you're going to have a lot of fun on the next conversation, episode 168. Well, until next week, keep it simple. Talk to you then. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple.